Welcome to the uh, Academy of Ideas Book Club. Uh, this evening, we're just thanks all everybody for coming. This evening, we'll be discussing uh, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Uh, most people will no doubt have read the book. Some people will have seen uh, either version of the film. And I know personally, I originally, as somebody mentioned actually earlier, I originally uh, saw the Truffaut film. In, we were shown it at sixth form in school. Um, and it made a big impression then. Um, and watching it again recently and reading it, reading the book again, made a big impression again, uh, uh, again now. Uh, it's a, obviously uh, quite a simple idea, but very powerful, which, which Dennis will, will, will discuss. The discussion will be introduced by Professor Dennis Hayes, who's Professor um, at the University of Derby, author of The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education, and particularly important for this discussion, founder and director of Academics for Academic Freedom. Dennis will give an introduction for 10 or 15 minutes, uh, then we'll have questions and comments. Um, as we say in these meetings, uh, the Academy of Ideas is not furloughed, um, uh, although obviously people are generally maybe going back to work, hope, if they're lucky at the moment, but we're not furloughed and we're relying on uh, goodwill of people to get us through these uh, choppy waters. So if anybody wants to uh, support us with, uh, for the price of a pint or whatever you can afford, go to academyofideas.org.uk, donate uh, and, and give us what you can afford. Just to announce a couple of events coming up, the next book club hasn't been arranged and will probably be in September. Um, uh, next Thursday, uh, the debate, the uh, Arts and Society Forum are debating what future for the arts in the post-lockdown world. Uh, and there's a panel of people from different parts of the arts, including my multi-talented co-host for this evening, Mo Lovett, who's on the panel, uh, who's here this evening. Uh, uh, they'll be discussing that next Thursday on Zoom. Uh, and then the following Tuesday from that, on the 11th of August, we've got a panel debate which is currently being convened on can we cancel cancel culture? And that's obviously quite a contemporary theme of, uh, 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 of how uh, people who say things that go against the grain are uh, excluded from public life. So that's quite an important debate on uh, Tuesday, the 11th of August. Again, all the details are on the Academy of Ideas website. But that's enough from myself, Jeff Kidder, who hosts these meetings. And I'll hand over to uh, Dennis, to introduce tonight's uh, session. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, misremembered. Um, when I was uh, at school, I learned all of Shakespeare's sonnets off by heart. So the introduction in the, as the rebels would give in um, Fahrenheit 451 is, I am Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, and it was a passion at the time for people just learning things off by heart. And um, 
re rehearsing them as party pieces. One other thing about reading um, books that I remembered when I was approaching this, because I'm not an authority on Fahrenheit 451, was to go back to the text. I started reading the book. And it's always good advice to um, not start with Wikipedia or um, any sort of a, critical works, but to go to the, the actual text and read the text carefully. And a strange thing happened that when I um, started reading it, I read um, the first line that um, it was a pleasure to burn. And suddenly I smelt burning. Somebody lit a bonfire um, outside the house. And I thought I was reading the first olfactory novel that had ever been written. But there have been many editions of this book, and um, in 2003, in an introduction to the 50th edition, Ray Bradbury said, what is there new to be said about Fahrenheit 451? And 17 years later, um, there may be less to be said that's new, but there's no harm in saying a few old things. So I just want to say a few things about the novel. And the first thing that has to be said about it and, um, is it's a really exciting novel. It's a rattling good yarn. Um, think, if you just think about the story, just in an outline, you know, Fireman Guy Montag, who takes pleasure in burning books in a society where books are banned because they make you unhappy, meets a mysterious young girl, Clarice McClellan, who seduces him to love books. She disappears never to return. A woman burns herself to death with the books she loves. Montag's growing passion for books and reading alienates him from his wife and neighbours. His wife reports him to the fireman and then leaves him. Ordered to burn the books in his house, Montag burns his captain Beatty to death with a flamethrower. He goes on the run, pursued by a mechanical hound and watched by the entire population of a city who are ordered to keep an eye out for him. He escapes to join a group of rebel book lovers in the countryside, each of which has learned a book off by heart. While there, the city he lives in is destroyed in a war that has been raging in the background throughout the novel. Montag be then becomes a book, or becomes to become a book. And importantly, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. We might like to discuss why it's that particular book. But knowing what a book is about, that but the book is about some theme, is never as important as knowing the story. The great thing about this is a fantastic story. Some of the most boring discussions of books are when people pick out a theme, you know, and say, this is a book about women in society, this is a book about whatever. But there is, nevertheless, an overriding theme in the book, um, and that's the defence of individualism, of human dignity, of the right to have your own thoughts and mind and to be a unique individual. Beatty, um, Montag's captain, absolutely despises individuals. And he says in one of the two soliloquies, or, di or dis di dis dialogues he has about books. Let's not quibble over individuals with memorandum, memoriams. Forget them, burn them all. Forget them, burn them all. Fire is bright and fire is clean. So I make this claim about Fahrenheit 451 that it nicely, perhaps not perfectly, balances theme and story. Bradbury said he was a passionate rather than an intellectual writer, and he's very modest about that because he always feels that he was never educated, never went to university. But um, to me, he does achieve it in this book without any pretension. But another theme in the book, and then my second point, is it's a defence of our humanity as readers. Millie Mildred, his wife, um, says, 
in part two, why should I read? What for? And the book is an answer to that question asked by the facile and superficial Millie. And Beatty's speeches in parts one and two are really a discussion of reading and in the context of why it, came, it, it disappeared in, um, in the future society that he envisions. And he makes several points that um, there's a sort of fear of the reader's digest that must have been in um, Bradbury's mind, that everything's reduced to 15 minute classics and um, you know, one page introductions to things. He also says that some minorities didn't like books, coloured people didn't like Little Black Sambo, whites didn't like Uncle Tob's Cabin, but generally people just stopped reading. They gave up, they didn't read. And um, I, that's the interesting situation, that reading just faded. That was his great fear. And we can talk about the context in which the book was written, but his fear was of what was going to happen in society with the advent of television and um, and as we would now say the internet as well, that people would stop reading. And of course, reading is very important. I mean, Frank Frady in reading from Socrates to Twitter ends by saying that readers are riskiness, that rediscovering the virtues of reading through cultivating the exercise judgment constitutes one of the most significant cultural challenges of the present. And I would go even further. I mean, re reading is really a subversive activity because between you and the book or the Kindle, you know, there's just you and your mind can take you wherever you want so it's a, a really um, unique relationship I think it's true with the characters in the in the campfire around the campfires and the different groups that he meets and they're all individuals but they have a very democratic approach to um, to existence and um, that he's actually warned that he mustn't ever see himself as important in the way he did when he was burning books. Um, he's told that uh, he's nothing more, well, so I'll read you the quote on page 196. Says, the most important single thing we had to learn and to pound into ourselves was that we were not important. We mustn't be pedants. We are not to feel superior to anyone else in the world. We're nothing more than dust jackets for books of no significance otherwise. So that, that's the new society he envisages, or the way to create a new society. It's through these networks of, of individuals who meet together, almost accidentally, but have all learned to book and have become that book and have since become individuals without having the egotism that they previously had, as many of them were academics and librarians. So I think it's an important text. And when I was thinking about learning things by heart and reading, the actual defense of learning things by heart, learning things by heart is actually very important. And you know, I don't think um, many of his predictions came true because reading seems to be on the increase as much as it is as the, with the rise of the internet. But that's something we can debate. But when Claire um, put out um, a notice about this book club, um, somebody accused her of hyperbole on Twitter. But the, and this person said, we're not actually burning books. Don't exaggerate. Well, people may not be burning books, but I wouldn't be so happy to say that it was in Hong Kong because the books that are on democracy that have been taken out of the library, I'm sure they're not being preserved carefully for um, future uh, in which they return to the shelves. So that aside, we've certainly been told what not to read from Huckleberry Finn to Kill a Mockingbird and any books written by um, dead white men. 
But Ray Bradbury had an answer to this in um, the afterword to his book where he says, you don't have to burn books if the world starts to fill up with non-readers, non-learners and non-knowers. So book burners are not perhaps the same as they were. They're not using flamethrowers as the firemen did, but they're still out there. And perhaps one of the challenges we can have in the debate is to try and find out who are the firemen of today and um, how do they burn? Thanks, Dennis. So uh, thanks for that challenge, but also now's an opportunity to ask any questions about the book or anything around it. Uh, make any comments or, or whatever, uh, and we can have a sort of wide-ranging, uh, wide-ranging discussion. If you'd like to say something, um, which I hope you do, then go to the participants button at the bottom, and then click on that, and then on the right-hand side, uh, the option to raise your hand should appear, and then you can uh, raise your hand, and I'll take you to speak. And I'll probably ask you to unmute yourself because it's a bit, often proves a bit tricky for the host to unmute. Um, but but from Dennis's start, is there anybody who'd like to uh, discuss the, the literary merits, the uh, uh, wider context where when the book was written or today? Um, I'll take you in turn. I've got Josephine Hussey first. So Josephine, if you can unmute yourself and then fire away. Okay, um, it's just um, a couple of things. Um, it, like, I agree, it's it's a really, really good read. And like you said, Dennis, um, the moment you read the first line, you're hooked, um, which um, is lovely. Um, uh, uh, but what I just wanted to say two things. One was um, about when he meets Clarice, um, because I don't remember when I read the book that she actually talked about books. Um, she just talked about thinking and engaging in discussion and for me it felt like that was the beginning of his journey that how do I think and then he started to look at the people around him who didn't think and why they didn't think and um and that led him to question what he was doing with the books I might have um remembered that wrong but um I thought that was quite interesting and um then the second thing is um the the kind of hope um towards the end of um kind of that you know, human beings are about telling stories. And so even if there aren't any books, we will remember stories and we will pass them on. And there's something really hopeful about the human spirit in that, that um, it doesn't necessarily need to be written down to, um, uh, to continue. Thank you. Uh, Therese, can you unmute yourself? Yes. Um, I felt a bit, I remember when we read the play, Claire said that she felt it was uncanny as though Camus was living in the house with her, going through um, the coronavirus lockdown. And I had a bit of a sense of that about this book, even though it isn't perfectly predictive, it does seem prescient in quite a lot of ways, almost as though he had a telescope into the future. And on the one hand, there was the um, prefiguring of technology, um, the earbuds that we have um, were shells and the like, um, the drones, um, the supersonic travel, um, and a lot 
um, that reflected how we think now, that most of the people, virtually everyone, except for the sort of rebel readers, had very superficial conversations. Like you couldn't say anything of import in case it offended anyone. Um, and there was a, um, a reflection, a resonance me too, of the sort of purity spiraling that we see now. The firemen were convinced of their own purity. They had convinced themselves that they were protecting other people and um, society. And, you know, when Dennis was saying we haven't seen, uh, said something about not having actually seen book burning, um, as far as I'm aware, um, you know, I haven't read of any incidents of actual book burning, but we have seen book culling in this country, certainly. And um, I saw at some point that a book written by Heather Brunskill-Evans, who I know has um, spoken at some um, Battle of Ideas events, um, one of her books was taken off the library at the Tavistock Clinic um, because of its views on gender. And um, I seem to remember a couple of years ago, there was a book that was pulped, a sociology textbook, because it said something about, um, I think it was about West Indian families not necessarily having fathers, and that was deemed to be offensive, so the book had to be withdrawn. Um, the thing that I find found a bit depressing was that I thought there were echoes of um, Plato's cave in this, in that the characters, the, the rebel readers, you know, the, those characters, are people who really want to find out what's going on. That there's, um, I suppose, yeah, that was another echo with current times that we sometimes trying to figure out what is fake news and what is true, how we're being managed and manipulated um, by media and politicians. And that reminded me of Plato's Cave written more than 2000 years ago. So as we're still um, waging that fight um, two millennia on, that's a little bit depressing. Okay, thank you. Sharmini. Uh, uh, hi, can you see me? Yeah. Yeah, hi. Um, okay, no, just on um, Josephine's point, actually, Joe, she does actually start off with asking him, why do you burn books? So it is sort of mentioned, um, Clarice, it, that you were asking about. So it does come in there. Um, Yes, what I, uh, what I was interested in was um, when, when uh, Bradbury was talking about his writing process as well, um, and the fact that he spent all his life in libraries, you know, reading and reading, and he wasn't, um, you know, um, educated through the usual process of university and stuff like that. Um, when he was writing, he says um, the names of the characters, you know, um, like Montag and um, um, things like the Salamander and stuff, they they weren't things like he thought about. It's like because of all the reading he's done, he's had all this like knowledge accumulated and they just sort of came to him. It was kind of like a subconscious um, event in a way. It, it's kind of very subconscious, but it just goes to show how much 
you take in subconsciously with the reading, you know, how much knowledge you actually imbibe and how, how important in a way some of that subconscious, you know, just reading widely, um, not sort of feeling, you know, you have to remember everything, but it's there somewhere and um, it, it sort of comes out. Um, I agree with um, the last speaker, I can't remember her name now, um, about how prescient it sounded because the world we're living in today with COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter and Me Too and all these things feels kind of sci-fi at the moment for me. It really does, you know. And, and even though people aren't um, physically burning books, um, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea of getting rid of evil words that might hurt people. Um, and, and, and that's the sentiment that, that's around at the moment. So books are being taken off, off shelves because, you know, they offend, um, you know, um, things like maybe they might get rid of Conrad's nigger in the narcissus because it's got the word nigger in it or, you know, silly things like that. And people not being able to cope with, um, with those words and how important um, as an individual or as a development of human beings that we face up to the bad as well as the good. And one, just one last point, Jeff, if you don't mind. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that um, Hugh Hefner was the first person to actually publish his book. And, you know, in the kind of Me Too world at the moment, people like Hugh Hefner might not exist anymore. And so it just goes to show, you know, that, um, you know, people have their useful and good sides as well as the sides that we probably don't like that much. Um, but I thought that was interesting. Thanks, Ramani. Jenny? No, you're muted. Yeah, okay. Is that me? Yeah. Right. Are you allowed to just jump in? Right. You come in. Is that you, Hal? Yeah. Can you just come in next after Jenny? I'll, I'll get you to speak. Yeah. Jenny, you come, come in next right. after. Okay. Um, I suppose what is so fascinating about the book is, as people have already mentioned, that it, it seems prescient and you're kind of applying, um, you know, today's conditions and, and seeing it in the book. Um, I mean, in addition to the things that people have raised already, I thought one of the interesting themes in it was the um, dissolution of privacy and uh, individual freedom, I thought was particularly important. And this, the, the way these seashells feed, constantly feed, I think what's called this sort of non-combustible data into people. And then of course, these television screens, um, you know, with their, their constant interaction with people in their actual living rooms. And, uh, um, uh, you know, these scripts that people then enter into as a form of communication and so forth. I found that very, very compelling because you, you could see how people would get completely embroiled in this and, you know, caught up in it. And it just smacked a little bit of, of, of some of the um, intimations you get that people do get caught up in technology and in that kind of communication, but it was the invasion of privacy and the loss of, of, of people's individuality in that, that I found very striking. Um, I suppose 
um, the the other thing that again sort of strikes a chord today is Beatty's account of the process by which um, books actually became anathema to society and to people who would previously have read. Well, he said that first of all, it started with minorities objecting to things they found offensive. Um, and he goes into who finds what offensive. And then the process that he outlines is one in which the state, but also the people, self-censorship. So not only state censorship, but self-censorship of anything that might be offensive until everything sort of begins to be robbed of any kind of controversy. So again, that was, that was um, a very interesting account, which seems remarkably close to, you know, to today's um, events. I suppose the thing that I found a little bit uh, disturbing in his, in, in his writing um, and in his scenarios, themes, if you like, rather than scenarios, was that it was very much blaming people, blaming ordinary people for this process going on and their desire um, to just have happiness and so forth. I guess he's writing at, at a period when there is, um, you know, obviously tremendous paranoia, you know, in America uh, about the, cold, you know, the emerging Cold War, um, about nuclear war, um, and, and also, of course, the background of the uh, House uh, Un-American Activities Committee and so forth. So, so he's writing in a period where you can understand that people would, would be interested in distraction and happiness and avoidance of any of these sort of more difficult questions. But it did trouble me somewhat that um, the conclusion you got was that the people themselves were very, very willingly led into this uh, loss of, 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 of freedom and, and loss of privacy. Thanks, Jenny. So, Hal, sorry, do you, do you come in and I'll get Dennis to make some comments and we go into it. Is there something you want to, whatever your thoughts? Thank you very much. Yeah, Noah, I was actually going to mention that chapter, so you're a bit prescient, those lines about, uh, and it's interesting because uh, I actually, one thing I kind of was kind of interested in is that uh, Beatty, I'm not sure if it's Beatty, I haven't watched the movie, I've only read the book, uh, pronounced it, uh, he almost like takes himself as an intellectual. So like he's like a public safety person almost like saying, well, like, we d we're smarter we don't want you to read this even though the population's dumbed down we're kind of the like the guardians if you go back to like platonic metaphor you could say like they're the guardians if this is like some sort of dystopian form of plato but uh but the other thing is like i mean uh when i was in a community college we i had a i had a class where a person complained to the uh professor who said that uh they really needed uh basically having uh like trigger warnings before uh two books we read in class um one of them was uh one of them was uh um 13 reasons why and i believe actually in the movie version they actually or the tv version they actually removed scenes which were said to be like triggering for suicide and then there were other um and then there's also this phenomenon of uh 
sensitivity readers now where people like pre-read books, see if they're offensive before they give them back to the writer. And I was like, I guess it's like personally, like I'm not like, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not sure if like anybody would consider that more harmful or is just, or is that more harmful or is now it, it also the case that maybe writers wouldn't even think about putting something in the draft at all for fear that it'll be knocked down by a, so it's almost like introducing a third middle layer between maybe there'll be an outraged public reaction among certain minority groups or certain other groups, or maybe there will be this critical reader, but now also the writers thinking in their head, well, I better not even put that in the draft because that might offend people too. Like, and we won't get past it anyway, that sort of idea. Yeah. Thanks very much for some really interesting points there. Uh, people might want to respond to that. Dennis, do you want to come back and then I'll... Yeah, in relation to what Jenny said about um, the attitude to um, ordinary people, it's Professor Faber who uses the um, microphone he's got in um, Montag's ear to warn him about the captain. And he says this, and it struck me um, as pretty awful. The captain belongs to the most dangerous enemy of truth and freedom. And he says, the solid, unmoving cattle of the majority. But I do think, you know, that that may be something about the um, the rebels. But Montague is actually quite sympathetic at times in, in the novel to Millie and her confusion. You think they're not so duped. They also take drugs because they're unhappy. You know, you remember Millie has her whole blood, um, they're all eight pints taken out and replaced to, because she's not coping with the ease of the world. So it's not quite... Um, a happy and a stable relationship and when he's around with the native uh, the neighbors they get really upset when he reads so there's some hope in humanity but i do think it's something that fits the flavor of the times that fear about what would happen you know if everybody put on their tv set and was on so i think um oh, it's quite just on the clarice issue she does actually say have you read any of the books that you burn and that starts him up thinking thinking about it as well as other things and of course there's a long discussion about what happens to Clarice um, she just disappears from the book which I think is quite a good thing um, Bradbury did say that in other versions of it his opera and so on he's put he lets Clarice survive and he actually allowed Truffaut to um, um, have her come back in as one of the um, rebel readers to make it more of a romance and I think um I don't think that was a good idea for the book. The book is good as it actually stands. I was, you know, I, as I read it too, I kept thinking there are so many things in it that are um, relevant to today. I wanted to keep using some of the quotes that go out through it, but I'm always a bit wary as, um, as Truffaut was about that particular book because it is of its time. Notice the nuclear war that's going on, the sort of war and the destruction of the cities is taken out of the film. And he advised Truffaut not to do that, to keep it for its time. So I think in some sense, it's a historical novel, but he did see it as quite right. He, th he thought it was a warning for the future and um, you know, quite a good one. Hence the, the story, you know, Montag becomes Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes is about, um, the message of Ecclesiastes is not to um, repeat the, 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 the mistakes of previous generations, to be materialistic, but to actually turn towards God. And in this sense, it's turned towards um, reading. But you know, it is. I mean, one of the um, interesting changes in the HBO film, I, I mentioned this to Jeff earlier, that when they're talking about what books they're going to read, it's it's on identity lines. So, you know, it's an, a black American who's going to read Notes of a Native Son and a Chinese woman who's going to read Mao. And um, 
a Greek woman who's going to read Plato. So it's got the divided sort. Was there's no sense of that in um, in, in Fahrenheit. So I'm, I'm just um, I never like to read um, books as too prescient. I mean, we, you can sort of read history backwards into it because um, it was completely wrong. I, mean, I tried to say this at the beginning. I, I don't think that the internet is the threat that it was. You know, people used to, if you just say Amazon, people used to say, you know, Kindle, somebody mentioned Kindle. Um, Kindle will kill the book. It's patently not true. The book is thriving. And um, the bigger problem is whether in the future we're going to teach enough kids to read and value books in, in the way that they did in the past. But there's so much you can get out of the book. And I did, I did mention one of the things it did for me, and all great books do this, is take you to read other books. So I went and read Pope's essay on man, which he quotes, which is about how to read well. So I think there's, you know, that's one thing I took from the book on second or third reading that you could, you know, there are other things. And pointing to that um, poem is, you know, was, was of great value. I suggested to Jeff it could be um, another book club read, actually read, because it's about how to read unbiased and in a fair and knowledgeable way to read literature. And so, I mean, there are so many, I, I'm always left with many questions about the book. Montag says after he's burnt um, Beatty to death and he's on the run, um, Beatty wanted to die. And I haven't got an answer to that. I'd be quite interested to say because before he dies and in the conversation he has, he's talking about a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You know, Beatty had read some books, but not enough. So there's a sort of theme about um, the need for knowledge that's quite important in there as well. Thanks, Dennis. So I'll take more contributions. People can respond to what other people have said as well. Uh, Joel is next. So if you'd like to unmute yourself. Hi. I absolutely loved reading this book. It was, um, I thought the writing itself turned up some absolutely great moments. And, um, you know, the uh, uh, when, you know, when he was saying about the magic is, only in what books say, um, but, you know, stitching the patches of the universe together into one garment for us. Uh, there were lots of sort of very thoughtful moments and good writing as well. Um, I was really interested in the character of Faber as well as Montag. You know, um, Montag seems to be the person, you know, obviously the main protagonist is overcoming his fear and anxiety and questioning the world. And Faber seemed this character who was more of a, a sort of custodian of knowledge and he's the gateway to that kind of escape and thinking to a different world, a bit of a kind of a safety. Um, you know, he also is, um, you know, talks about, about books being only one type of receptacle for knowledge. And I thought that was really important in terms of, um, you know, how we think about histories and knowledge and that broader exchange of ideas and feelings and the importance of being able to see in other people's worlds. I think one of the overriding sense, and Dennis, you touched on it when he talked about Beatty, how perhaps Beatty uh, sort of wanted to die, was that, you know, sort of inextricable sort of sense of isolation that people felt from not having these points of connections, you know, those sort of walls of, that they had in their worlds of technological stuff and things coming at them and not really being able to talk and connect with people about stuff and being very isolated. And um, I mean, Jenny, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, that 
what you were saying about um, perhaps blaming people as passive, because that came up quite a bit. You know, the public stopped reading of its own accord of self, you know, and self-censorship. And that is something that does strike a real resonance now. But overall, and I find this is something in science fiction generally, you know, it often portrays a bit of a dystopia. And as you were saying, Dennis, you sometimes you know, we can read things backwards in science fiction and dystopias and try and see things that are prescience in them. But for me, there was a, a huge glimmer of hope and humanity. You know, this, I think one of the common threads uh, in this book and other science fiction is a sort of humanity that sort of refuses to be thwarted and a sort of, you know, I think there was a phrase, the triumph over tomorrow, you know, that proverbial, you know, those are sort of cracks where the light gets in. Um, one other thing, very quickly, is I, I've spent uh, a, a few years working on cultural heritage projects in Vietnam, and um, where uh, there are about 54 different ethnic communities whose histories are quite actively suppressed by the communist government. And it's interesting if, if any of you have ever travelled to... Um, uh, sort of Vietnam, and we know huge have huge amounts about the Vietnam War, which is called the American War. And there's lots of archive materials and histories that are just, you know, sort of written out of context. So I think that thing about censorship happens in a myriad of different ways. I mean, you literally, I think you mentioned Hong Kong earlier. Um, but there are all sorts of histories that people don't have access to. And around the world, that kind of censorship is still, you know, controlling the sort of narrative and the story that people can sort of tell. And a lot of that is about access to books, to old films, footage. Um, and it's why archives become um, so important. Sorry, I'm going to stop there. My phone's ringing. Thanks, Joel. Um, uh, Russell next, and then my co-host Mo, and then we'll go back. Yep. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, it's it's a, a profoundly historical document as far as I'm concerned, because I, I first read this in the 60s, I think, in South Africa. I can't remember exactly when I read it, but I know it had a huge impact on me because it was, after all, a time of of widespread censorship. I mean, there, there used to be a list in the newspaper every week of books that were banned, which was almost an incentive for people to go and look for these books and read them illegally, you know, procure them illegally. Um, and ironically enough, I mean, people really made an effort to do that. Uh, people found books, read them, read them in, in collectives. Um, and uh, whether they made a positive contribution to the way that things went in the country is another question. But uh, there was an active movement which took literature and reading very seriously. You know, the famous Chris Harney, for example, uh, was uh, always walked around quoting Shakespeare. And there were a lot of people like that. And the point's been made, uh, do, do we live in a time where, where we're, we're burning books? Or what's the equivalent of that? And people 
people felt, well, there, there isn't really an equivalent. Um, but I, I would, in South Africa, that, that incentive to, to collectively get hold of important literature and read it together and use it as part of trying to change society has been virtually entirely destroyed by the collapse of education. Uh, our education system is so poor that illiteracy is absolutely widespread. So we don't really have to burn books in this country. People cannot read. And uh, the kind of communication that people have via social media is of a profoundly illiterate kind. And I'm, I'm not saying this in an insulting kind of way. People have a very sort of limited patois that they use in, in social media. And I mean, the question for me is, can we make progress socially when it's difficult to grasp and understand big and complicated ideas because you're so poorly educated? Uh, we, we come from this history where Favort, the famous apartheid politician, said people didn't need a proper education because they all they were was hewers of wood and drawers of water. Um, people went out of their way to, to fight that, in fact. But today, ironically, in a, a government that came out of a liberation struggle, people have no education whatsoever and cannot read. Um, and that's, I, I suppose, that that should be a political project, literacy, uh, once again in this country, but it's it's not really alive as a as an idea at all. So we are, re I think we're really hobbled as a society by people's inability to read, not by the lack of literature um, itself. Thanks, Russell, for that interesting perspective. Mo. Um, yeah, I just wanted to um, come, uh, kind of come back on something Hal said, but also, um, Dennis, when you were talking about learning by rote, because what I loved about the the kind of um the exiled book lovers that they were they were learning the books um by, by rote and it reminded me of um when i was a student studying hamlet and my grandmother who was very poorly woman she was on lithium she wasn't mentally particularly well um but she um she started um um reciting um polonius's speech to laertes and it was such a, an emotional moment for us because she'd retained that memory of um, you know, learning it from school and we didn't even think she had it in her. It was just, and, and actually it's, it's the inscription on her uh, book of remembrance now because it was such a wonderful moment for us that she'd learnt, um, learnt that speech um, by heart. Um, and when I've worked with singers um, in the past, if they, you know, they can read music and they can learn learn the manuscript but also um they they, they learn by ear and um i asked a, a singer friend which do you prefer and she said i much prefer listening by ear because i take it into my body i learn it by heart i don't learn it from reading the dots on the page and i i take it into my heart so um i, I really enjoyed that kind of moment at the end of the book where, where the um where, where the kind of um exiled book lovers are taking things into their heart they're taking these stories into them and um the thing about that is that you can't take it away it's how oral histories and stories are passed down it keeps things alive obviously it has a mimetic effect and uh, things kind of distort and change and get elaborated but it keep, kind of keeps culture alive um so I just I just thought you know that's something we have, hadn't touched on, but just 
What I think is different, um, the bit that didn't resonate with me about today's society is the things that Hal was talking about, about sensitivity readers and um, trigger warnings in, in, in kind of universities when, when, when you're teaching, whether it be literature or, 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 or a sensitive subject, in, usually in the humanities. And um, that seemed to me very different. I mean, I've been reading a little bit about the clash of the cultural elite and the political elite today. So maybe that's just on my mind, but the cultural elite do seem to be the ones that are concerned about sensitivity, about reading things, about not really sort of, you know, kind of value and freedom of expression and the autonomy of readers and listeners and, uh, you know, um, uh, audiences of theatres to kind of make their own minds up. So to me, that didn't ring true. I think uh, Josephine had put in the chat there, it's not not necessarily state that this, this kind of modern censorship that we're, um, we're experiencing does seem to be led a lot by a kind of cultural elite or clashes within, within the elite. Um, and quite often I see ordinary people, this is just on Facebook, but in my own friends as well, kind of battling against this. And, and, and you know, I think that's what the book doesn't capture for me about society is this, you know, the democracy's urge, the demos's urge to kind of stay intellectually alive. My thoughts. Thanks, Mo. Uh, Pamela, are you okay to unmute yourself? Hello, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. So um, I just wanted to say a few things that are probably quite um, similar to what other people have said already. But the first thing is that I just really loved this book um, and I hadn't read it before and I have never seen any of the films, but I'm a real fan of uh, Brave New World and 1984 and lots of dystopian novels. And so when I first started reading it, I was really enjoying it and I was kind of thinking, okay, but what is this saying that's new? Because in Brave New World, for example, they're not allowed to, to read books. And then I think towards the end, um, he comes across the Bible or, or something like that. I haven't read it in a long time. Um, and so I was trying to think about what it was saying that was new. And I take this point that maybe we could be reading a little bit too much into what this book might say about now. But I did think it was quite interesting, this idea that people were sat in their houses and all of their walls were like television screens and that they were really short programs that they called the family and that they were kind of calling to people by name and that complete immersion in the, the technology. And that, so when Dennis kind of said the internet is maybe not the threat that we thought it might be to reading, even though it might not be to reading sort of directly, I think that Bradbury has maybe sort of prophesized this complete immersion in technology and that it's just involved in absolutely everything that we do. Um, and so the threat that I think it might have, which maybe it has in the book, is, is basically to do with kind of concentration, like people's concentration and the ease of getting information. So the sort of rebels at the end that are memorizing the books and uh, people talking about um, grandmothers or, or whatever that have uh, memorized things is that now, you know, I'm a teacher and they don't really feel necessarily the need to memorize things because they know that if they forget, they can just Google it and get it instantly. And this kind of instant immersion kind of culture and also the idea that the walls were kind of calling them by name you know when if you log on social media I don't actually have any social media but I believe that adverts are kind of all tailored to it kind of stores information about what you've searched for and um, kind of tailors things to you and uh, you know so this idea of sort of state censorship versus self-censorship is that 
what we're sort of maybe doing is that when we're kind of immersed in this technology, because it's just giving you things that you've already, almost like an echo chamber, I suppose, um, is that it's just throwing back things that you've already looked for. And so you're not really being exposed to new ideas or different ways of thinking about things. And maybe that's why on Facebook, again, I don't have Facebook, but I know because my husband tells me that, you know, people get into quite heated debates and they're very sort of rigid in their views. And maybe that's partly to do with the fact that everything's just so quick and no one really has this kind of concentration that can, can sort of follow things through. And that's why Clarice is just this really wonderful character because she likes to just sort of walk really slowly and look at nature and stop and think about things. And then Montag kind of uh, thrown back by, by her. Um, so I just wanted to ask particularly though, what people thought about Mildred's, um, what I presume to be an attempted suicide towards the start, because obviously this idea that BT puts forward is that everyone or the reason that society has kind of got rid of books is because uh, they cause unhappiness. Um, and I mean, it was quite interesting when Jenny was talking about his, um, was it Jenny that was talking about it, his kind of defense for why they kind of um, were taken out of society is because minorities disagreed and basically um, they created inequality and created unhappiness. So it was interesting that, I think he says at some point about people feeling less intelligent than other people. But if we just get rid of books, if we just make everyone the lowest common denominator, then everyone will, will be happy. I thought that was separately an interesting point. But um, the fact that Mildred's clearly not happy or, or is she not happy? So I think that Montag kind of toys with the idea that she's just taken lots of pills but she's forgotten that she's taken so many pills so she didn't mean to try and commit suicide um, it was just because she's being really forgetful so my kind of earlier point about concentration and how no one can really concentrate for very long or really kind of take on any information and and keep it in their heads unlike the the rebels later in the book so do people think that she tried to kill herself and then she kind of forgets or doesn't want to say that that's what she did um, the next day? Um, or is she just that forgetful? And it's kind of symptomatic of the society, the dystopian society created, that it kind of um, has taken away people's ability to concentrate for any period of time that she's just accidentally um, taken too many pills and uh, led to almost almost uh, committing suicide. So do people think that she wanted to or not is something that I'm interested in. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Uh, Will, would you like to, people can come back on those things, but Will, you need to unmute yourself. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I'm also reading the moment um, Madame Bovary. And one thing, when you, read, when you read around a book like that, you know, that was a book that was um, tried to be suppressed in its time. You know, that's like 100 years ago or so. And it, it treated of, you know, adultery. It, it was seen as, a, um, as an attack, an affront on the morality of the culture of that time. And I think it's very easy for us to forget how um, censorship was and has been the norm. You know, all through European, you know, Christian cultural history, there has been an index of books that have been banned obviously in communist and totalitarian societies, there's a lot of censorship. So this idea that um, 
there should be this kind of freedom of intellectual material that the, the public at large should be able to access whatever ideas, whatever opinions that they feel like. It's actually quite a new idea. It's a relatively radical idea. It obviously sits at the heart of the modern Western tradition. But it's, it, is a, it is a difficult and a controversial one. And I think that one of the things that we're seeing <clears throat> in the current society is that as we're all more connected now, we're all much more able to, to see and to monitor each other's activities and opinions. Um, I think, you know, we are rediscovering this human um, kind of like desire to, to control, control or not be offended by other people's actions. And that's actually quite common. And you're seeing people now wanting to say, well, we don't want people to have these cultural ideas that might you know, say that the, the extreme that one race is better than another one nation is better than another. We, we want that idea to be, to be controlled. And that's actually quite, quite normal historically. So it, 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 I'm, in, I'm in a sense a little bit pessimistic. And I think that Ray Bradbury is kind of like you know, being prescient in a correct way in, in, in seeing that as society becomes more able to, to monitor individuals and, and observe what they're up to, they, there, is a, there is a strong human instinct to control actually what what they, get, what they get into their minds. And I think we're also seeing, um, you know, we, we also, people have asked the question, what is the book burning? What is, what is the kind of the, the metaphor for that today? And I think it, there's a very strong one, which is that, you know, the, the progressive ideology that we're all witnessing um, has, has taken the view that historical society, historical culture was less enlightened than, than the current society. And therefore, the ideas and the thoughts and the writings of those people lacks legitimacy because it didn't have the, the insight that we have today. So all this you know, criticism now of the American founding fathers, some, some of the people you know, in that pantheon were, were great thinkers, great writers, and a lot of what they you know, put into the culture is now being delegitimated because some of them may have owned slaves, some of them did not condemn slavery. So their failure on certain kind of moral questions is invalidating their entire corpus, which is, which is a kind of book burning and saying, well, these, these people, they're not worth paying attention to because they didn't think like us on X, Y, Z front. And then the final point I would make is, um, you know, the, the reference to Ecclesiastes. I mean, Ecclesiastes as a book is really about saying, you know, this, I think King Solomon, who supposedly wrote it, you know, he, he did everything in his life that he thought he should do. He followed all the pleasures, he followed all the achievements that he wanted to achieve. And he ended up feeling that he was empty and had achieved nothing. And he started to look in, into his soul, into his, into his being and to see well, what, what is missing once I've you know, built my palaces, you know, built, you know, had, had my, my friends, my family, whatever, I still I don't feel fulfilled. And I think that kind of questioning of the, of the inner core of what it means to be a human being is where this kind of rebelliousness comes from, where the, this kind of refusal to just accept, I, I should watch television, I should, I should do X, Y, Z. You think, well, no, I want more than that. And the things you want more of is meaning, it's, it's kind of love, it's, it's all those things which in Bradbury's book doesn't exist. People don't love each other because they're so kind of um, obsessed by, by the, the, the television entertainment and, and all the other distractions that they have. And I think people you know, need in some ways books to, to, to read other people's journeys through their life experience and to where they've ended up. And Ecclesiastes is a great example of that. And if you, if you take that away, 
um, out of the culture. People, you know, if you were trying to control the culture, then you can you know, make people sign up more to all the all the distractions that you that you put in front of them. Well, okay, uh, Patrick, you're okay to unmute yourself. Should be okay. I don't know. I'll just try. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to say. I'll, I'll see if I can do the video as well. Yeah, hopefully, if you can see me as well. But uh, I'm not used to the technology that much. Um, I, I was just going to say that I, I was interested in uh, what uh, was said about the accuracy of the predictions. Because I don't think the predictions as far as sort of the comparison between film and books and the idea that we only have shallow um, films and TV as in that society would be very accurate because I think that the language of film in our society is actually very complex. And I'd agree with some of what Russell said um, about, uh, and I'm afraid I missed the, the lady's name earlier, because uh, it doesn't show up at the bottom of the screen, so I was trying to find her in the top part. But uh, she raised the question of concentration. And I think what we've got is we've got a very subtle film language, which particularly younger people can recognise cues, and there's a kind of visual language going on, which is actually quite complex. And if you study what directors, for instance, say they're trying to achieve in the film, it is as complex as you would find in any book. And anything that an author sets out. So the question is, how is it different? In, in Fahrenheit 451, it portrays it as very simplistic and shallow, which of course in our society, I would say isn't. And the main difference is what was raised about concentration, and in particular, critical thinking, I would say, in that film is very immediate. You don't necessarily get the opportunity to think about what you're absorbing. Um, and it hits, you on a, it hits your brain on a level where it just goes through very, very quickly without you exercising any judgment about it. And it bombards you with that, in fact, in a way that doesn't. In a book, you can choose how quickly you read or don't read a book in a way that you can't choose with film. So I think that's the first thing that the, as a prediction of the way our society is today, I don't think it's very accurate. And I do think there are dangers of sort of film and entertainment over the traditional book, but I don't think they're the ones that he was identifying, really. And the other thing is that just the whole idea of banning books, uh, I mean, Russell pointed out that when they published the list of banned books in uh, South Africa, people were now sort of actively sort them out. And in fact, uh, you know, it's a very... Uh, two-edged sword to ban the book because you can get that reaction. And, uh, you know, in our society, again, it's far more subtle in that they simply don't promote it. And so what you're trying to do with censorship is not to ban something, it's to narrow its audience. Uh, and the most subtle censors, they don't, they're not banning books because they realise that the way you, you uh, restrict a book's message is to actually ensure that it doesn't get reviewed, it doesn't get promoted, it has a very narrow audience. As soon as you actually start coming out and say we're going to ban something, you're in a sense promoting it. 
and uh, you know you you run the risk of having a backlash against that. So I'd say that he didn't really. Uh, for me, 1984 is a much more subtle book and prediction of the future. Um, and I don't think that the, you know, Fahrenheit 451 is as nuanced uh, in that. So I'd just say really that as a, as a description of the future, I'm not sure that it, it was very accurate. No, that's great. Thank you very much. And then uh, I think Chrissy, and I get Dennis to come back and comment on a few things and then we'll have a final round, I think. Chrissy. Yeah. Hi. Uh, first of all, I've got to admit it's been many years since I read the book. Uh, so as a little bit of um, research, I, I tried to watch a few little clips from the Truffaut film. And um, the thing that struck me was there's lots of um, uh, scenes where the, with the books being burned and it looks as though Truffaut is actually really enjoying these scenes. Um, and you're sort of watching it, trying to see, oh, what 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 title's going to be burnt next? And um, what's what's um, apparent is that they are presumably Truffaut's idea of uh, all of the great books of um, of the of the canon. And that brings me on really to um, a question that I know is probably too subtle to deal with in either the film or the or the uh, or the book which is the question of um, quality versus content in terms of censorship. Because there's no doubt that um, the, the main reason for most books never being published, most books that are written never being published, is that they're probably not very good. Um, and certainly um, the publishers might get that wrong a lot of the time. As we know, lots of, um, of the most important books have been rejected um, time and time again, probably because the publishers couldn't recognise what was in there rather than them being worried about the, the content of them. Uh, but it does bring up the question of how censorship and uh, over in terms of content and, to, and in terms of quality can get muddled, up, muddled together and cause all sorts of problems. So, for instance, I remember a couple of years ago when... Um, Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand had that um, that uh, that incident, and Jonathan Ross got dropped. Um, and I, I remember thinking at the time that it was probably about time for him to go because he'd been on he'd been on BBC for donkey's years, and he was getting a little bit boring. Um, and but in in that sense, and also similarly, I thought um, similar things might well be happening with a lot of the the, the books that are being. Um, withdrawn on the basis of the the, uh, uh, the writers culturally appropriating things that they, they really don't know about. It might well be that, in actual fact, they're not well done. You know, to 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 um, to write a different culture is is, is going to be quite difficult. Um, and that really does bring me to the to, to the main point. I think is is the dishonesty around that that it's. Um, it's, it might well be the case these days that it's easier to say to someone rather than this isn't really good enough, you have to work a lot harder and, and improve it, to say, um, well, actually, no, it's, it's, it, it's, it's troublesome in terms of, in terms of the content and what, you're, and what you're doing there. And that does make it, well, might well make it difficult for people to, um, to work out how to improve the quality of their work if they're not able to get a fair appraisal on the basis of quality um, 
yeah, that's it. Okay. Dennis, do you want to come back on a few things and then we'll have a... But on Chris's point, I just think it's the opposite situation. I mean, Bradbury tells stories of struggling to write the different um, versions of you know, from Merman to the early Fahrenheit 451, hard to get published. Um, it seems to me that it's easy to get published nowadays. It's exactly that the, there is a lack of discrimination in what's... Masses and masses of books are being published. You know, if you just take my own area of education, there are millions of anything gets published, particularly if it just reflects contemporary um, ideas. So I, I think it's, I'd like some more judgment. I think you're right. Well, that would be a good reason, because if it was true, um, it may be true in occasional things. But um, you know, if you take Milo's book, which I can't remember the title of now, you know, that was pulled, but I don't think it was pulled because it was poor quality. It probably is poor quality. But it seems to me that that's not the situation. Everything gets published. But I'd, I'd, one of the things about the book, and it's um, when you listen to Beattie talking, the question of irony always comes into my mind because we take at face value everything he says. And it's too often we take at face value what characters are saying. And it all seems a bit contrived to me, his stories about why books were banned. I mean, it leaves us with no um, real answers. But you, can we trust him? And that's the real thing. Is he telling the truth or is he saying something that he knows that people want to hear. So it's really, um, you know, Arian is a problem throughout the novel. And one of the things that I'd say about it, um, I, I wouldn't compare it, you know, Brave New World, 1984, it's, it's a different sort of novel. He says it's his only science fiction novel that he's ever written, rather than a fantasy. But it's a very inconclusive book, if you think about it, at the end, you know, what, what's happening, you know? Montag's going back to the ruined city, the, the readers are wandering off, Faber is somewhere on a journey between two destroyed cities. You know, it's a very uncertain um, future for the book. So, you know, that, I think that reflects the times, and I think his concern with censorship reflects certainly what was happening at that time. There was no doubt that people were banning books. So, I think um, you know, there are all sorts of issues with the book. And the, one of the things I always think about people saying about the quality of the writing, and sometimes I find it grates a bit. Is that the attempts to be poetic sometimes are a bit artificial. Um, you know, you'd have to go through a full textual analysis, but sometimes I was, when I was going through, I kept thinking it's a bit strained, you know, he's trying to be imaginative, creative, and the writing isn't that good. But that's the quality judgment, Chrissy. I don't know. It'd be interesting what other people think about the quality of writing. Amanda. Hello. Hello, carry on. Um, I've really, really enjoyed listening to everybody talking about it. It's one of my favourite books. Um, so it, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to everybody. Um, can I reply to I think Pamela's question about Mildred? Mm -hmm. And whether, whether I, yeah. I, in my head, yeah, she tried to kill herself because her life was empty. Just um, an empty life and she saw no point in anything. Uh, that's, that's quite a theme in... I read a lot of science fiction. It's, it's been quite a theme in science fiction of that era. I think the fact that people can be uh, connected, but also very isolated, and um, they lose empathy, and, and they lose um, they lose concentration, they lose the ability to think. But losing empathy as well. One of the things that struck me with this book when I first read it, when I was at school, this is 40 years ago, was the fact that she, Mildred liked to ride around at speed at night, killing things with her car. <laughs> And that, I mean, that was profoundly shocking to young me. I was horrified by that. And also shocking 
on the first week was the, the fact that there was a massive war going on and that, that was a real fear in the early 80s. The risk of nuclear war was a massive fear. And rereading the book, it, the book doesn't seem to be about that anymore to me. It, it just seems to be about this um, human emptiness and the massive gaping hole that having no books leaves in people's lives. So it's, um, it's almost like reading the same book, but reading it from a completely different perspective. It's, it's been absolutely brilliant. I think it's, I think it's really lyrical. I know that Dennis, you were saying it was a bit grating, but um, it reads like a poem to me. I think I'm just, um, I'm just so in love with it. I probably can't criticize it. I just love it so much. Um, yeah, that's my thoughts. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, it, it's a funny thing because on the one hand, it's true what people say, that what is in the book is not literally happening, certainly not in the, in the Western world, um, and it's not accurate. But on the other hand, it does have, it's quite powerful. And to me, as Josephine said at the beginning and others, there is a sense, particularly at the end when they're all reading the books, however contrived that is, there's a sense of the human spirit and, you know, transcending all these things that are put in your way and blocks and, uh, and, and, and whatever in terms of your, in, in terms of the development of society. It has a certain spirit to it in the same way that when he does the preface to the book, uh, is it 2003, whichever the preface is, where he talks about when he meets the policeman on the street in, uh, in, in California and the policeman's like, what are you doing? And he says, I'm walking. What's wrong with that? He has a, he sort of uh, has a sense of wanting the, the fr individual freedom and liberty, uh, unless there's a good reason not to have it, I guess. And that which sort of, uh, even though what's, what's said in the book isn't literally happening, it has that spirit going through. And I also thought, you know, Hal's earlier points, you know, trigger warnings, which, have, which started off with a bit of fanfare, now all these things like trigger warnings, sensitivity reading, they just happen as routine and people have stopped talking about them. Um, um, on, the, on the films, uh, I know people got different views, but I mean, the H HBO film I thought was quite well done. It was quite entertaining. Um, I, I thought it was a bit, without trying to spoil it for people, at least at the end of the Truffaut film and at the end of the book, there's this sense of a community of people passing on the kind of, uh, the, the, you know, the product of human achievement through literature. Whereas at the end of the HBO film, it's slightly contrived, but, it, you know, the, the power of the state is, is, you know, gets to all quarters, which is, struck me as a rather pessimistic end to the most recent, um, most recent version of the film. So I had a slightly, uh, you know, a slightly... Uh, different view on that. Also, Pamela talking about schools. I mean, my anecdote was, I remember a few years, only like five years ago, six years ago, I was reading The Fall, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon, which is a huge book, which I'd never read before. And I was reading for uh, an event we were organizing at the time. And I went to my, visit my aunt in a care home, my elderly aunt. And uh, I had this huge book and she said, oh, what's that? And, and I said, I thought she, she wouldn't have a clue. And she said, oh, Gibbon, yes, I read that at school. And that was many, many decades before. And there was a sense 
for a long time that ordinary people in de any decent school would read lots of quality literature of all different types and not think twice about it. They'd just read those books in a way that now wouldn't happen. And as I think Will said, people would e are even questioning now that that literary tradition and what it stands for and whatever. And some of the best works are now uh, 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 pushed aside um, and that quality. But that little anecdote a few years ago, you, you realise that uh, there are many things which are important, which have to some extent been lost, which is quite, uh, quite disturbing. Anyway, I've got a few more people who've uh, spoken already, like to speak again, so that's fine. So Therese, Therese is first. It's muted. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I found the writing interesting. I thought, you know, on the one hand, it was raw and punchy. And yet a lot of the time it seemed quite elegant and insightful to me and often seemed to um, sort of bring something out about a situation or just something in passing. I thought, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's spot on. And um, by the end, I was left wondering the people who were left at the end to hopefully in some way either pass on or um, build a sort of civilization anew, how they would write. Because in a sense, they, like Bradbury, would not have had um, entirely a formal education, um, you know, a traditional education. So you know, perhaps we write too much alike because we're sort of all put through the same education now. Um, but I really did enjoy his style of writing and it was one of those books that kind of read itself for me. Um, the episode of Death by Fireman, um, as opposed to Death by Cop, as we sometimes have nowadays, and Mildred's suicide, I found quite intriguing because one of the things about the book, um, I thought, is that I think we can understand the motivations of the rebel readers and Montag when he had his sort of enlightenment. But I don't think we ever really get to understand what's going on in the heads of the other people, of people like Mildred and her friends. And are they duped into believing what they're told, as some people have been in under totalitarian regimes? And I have read of incidents in the past where people so believed Stalin that they betrayed their own family, who they thought were uh, unpatriotic. So, you know, that was something that sort of left me wondering you know, what was meant to be going on in the heads of people like Mildred and Beatty. Um, and another issue that I thought cropped up was that of betrayal, that it's, it's only said in passing, but um, Montag says something that indicates that he felt very betrayed by Mildred taking the pills. Um, and perhaps that was a sort of microcosm echo of the sort of wider betrayal in society. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, it was a bit unclear, but I suppose I'd come down on the side of neither of them wanting to admit at that stage that there might be any reason for 
Mildred wanting to discontinue her life um, of watching the screens, which to me sort of echoed more reality TV, daytime TV rather than anything else. And, you know, I didn't have the sense that Bradbury was setting out to write a predictive book in the way that one has with 1984. I just found it interesting that there did seem to be a number of resonances, um, including the cancel culture that seemed to have ended the careers of the academics and, and the others who were the, um, the rebel readers. And just, you know, one final, uh, yeah, another sort of thing that I was reminded of was the way there seems to be a pressure on young people nowadays. And this seems to be almost like the dominant pressure to lead their best life without any real reflect reflection on what a best life might be. And it does seem to be very materialistic as it was, you know, for Mildred and her friends. And just one final thought, I don't know if there's anything in this or it's just me reading something into it. Um, whether Freud might have been somehow swilling around in the background when he was writing. Um, because I think Freud had quite a sort of depressing view about humanity, did he not? And, and there is a sort of depress depressing view about humanity that is present in this book as well, as, as well as the element of hope. Great, thank you. Jenny. Is that me? Yeah, just in terms of the style of writing, I, I, I must say I didn't think it was that brilliant. Um, I find it had a kind of a certain naivety. It, it, it just came across as quite a naive style. Um, but um, actually, once or twice, I found it really, I mean, there were, there were quite a few shocking things, um, which I thought were well written. The, the one was uh, when Mrs. Hudson actually lights the fire, so to speak, that sets alight her whole house and she burns in it. The other which was, I found very striking was um, when Clara Phelps, one of the friends, of one of Millie's friends, um, cries, uh, you know, when um, Montag reads um, Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. So it, it had it had touches where I, I find it was both able to shock, but also able to sort of uh, evoke a, a sense of empathy to some extent. But overall, I don't know. I, I, I just felt there was a degree of, of sort of naivety in the writing. I don't know if that's true. But the, the point I, I really wanted to make, um, or, or rather the question I really wanted to, to, to raise, was this one about Ecclesiastes? Estes, um, because I, I must admit, I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I read the book, but I did look it up on, on Wikipedia because I know nothing about um, the, the Old Testament, um, really. Um, but uh, slightly differing with my Wikipedia interpretation to, to Will, Will's points was that um, 
he makes the point that um, this is actually unauthored, although uh, textually it's sort of the king of Jerusalem writing, but it is unauthored, except at the end, um, the author, um, through his kind of, um, uh, he, he speaks through somebody um, meant to be sort of David or something, and then at the end, the author comes in, apparently, and um, gives an interpretation of, of, of the discussion in which he kind of endorses wisdom as being um, a very good way to lead a good life. But then says, well, the problem is whether you're wise or you're stupid, you're both going to die. And that in a sense... Uh, it, well, in, in, in a way, life can be senseless. So it's much, much better to just get on and enjoy um, the simple things in life, like, you know, um, food and uh, drink and, uh, uh, and enjoying your work and that sort of thing. Um, enjoying the simple pleasures um, of daily life. So it, I, I couldn't quite connect all that with the book. And I'd be very grateful if uh, Dennis could just give a few <laughs> bits of elucidation there. Thanks. I'm sure Dennis can do that in a summary. Um, how? Yeah, muted. Yeah, yeah no, what I was going to say is, uh, I mean, probably a lot of people on this, uh, I mean, this is an Institute of Ideas uh, seminar and this is one of the people who's kind of associated with that but i actually read uh, a week ago it was a uh, frank fearday i'm not sure pronouncing his name's uh book about uh the, the like private and public boundaries and uh yeah. we were, there was discussions about um uh, and borders and there was discussions about how uh a lot of uh the upsetness people feel in their uh in their like private lives relates to the way uh i, I forget exactly what i'm sorry but basically the idea, what I was going to say was something along the lines of that books allow us to be like publicly engaged, but have the private space in our heads as opposed to the way like maybe I'm on a Zoom call and maybe I'm on like multiple other Zoom calls at once sometimes. And it's like you really are bombarded and you feel like you, you can't say certain things even on like the literal level. Like, oh, are they going to hear me on the other call? Oh, am I going to say something that's like offensive or whatever? as opposed to when you're engaging more solitary with a piece of literature and then you're going to talk to somebody about it and, uh, and having a group hopefully where you could uh, speak about it or just read it alone. There's kind of that distinction where you can make that private public, uh, you can kind of navigate that barrier consciously as opposed to uh, when you're like consuming media online where it's kind of the boundaries extremely blurred. So that almost like removes that human freedom as aspect of it. And that like the whole, like, I mean, the telescreens, you see kind of people are just surrounded by these things in the, uh, in Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, thank you. And in fact, that Faraday book you mentioned, he did a launch on it a few weeks ago and the, the videos on the Academy of Ideas website, that's of interest. So uh, that's a, certainly a book worth looking at. Uh, Nicholas. Oh, hello. Right. Hello. Um, hello. Good. You can hear me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess a question being toyed with throughout and throughout our conversation is 
can we preserve culture without maintaining elites? Do we need elites to maintain culture? I, I, you know, that you, you, you see that coming through with all this talk about um, the tyranny of the majority. Um, and I, 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 I think also about um, a, great, a great deal of the stuff that Roger Scruton writes or wrote, he being now dead. Um, but, you know, so, 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 so much of um, what people have been talking about in this evening's discussion has essentially echoed um, and confirmed the fears that um, Scruton um, wrote about in so many of his so many of his books, so, you know, the, 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 the idea that through the um, more or less deliberate uh, miseducation of people, we could end up at a point at which, without having to burn any books or burn any scores of music, um, our culture would simply be dead because people would no longer be able to um, understand or access that. Uh, but of course, Scruton was very, very fond of this idea of elites. Uh, he was very committed to the idea of elites. Um, he, um, he, 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 he loved them, and uh, one almost wonders why, given that they really didn't love him back. Um, but, but, it, but, it, but it does come back to um, this little line that Dennis quoted um, at the start uh, from the rebels, you are not important, which seems to relate to this idea of... Um, you know, <laughs> Can 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 we maintain culture without without maintaining elites that are um, well that 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 at least see themselves as superior to everybody else um, who doesn't have that same that same culture or the, or, the, or, the, or 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 that same level of access to culture? Can we can we have culture without the arrogance of elites? Okay, that's a very good question. And one we probably don't have time to solved tonight there's also the issue of when you have elites who seem to cease to believe in the culture or the traditions which are traditions are passed on from generation and you have a an elite generation who's back off from it and there's issues there as well today so there are certainly issues to be, to be explored okay so we seem to have uh, run out of hand so uh, uh, we're nearly out of time too so I'll ask Dennis if he'd like to answer any outstanding questions and leave us with any thoughts or things we can ponder um, during, the re during the rest of the summer. Dennis. I think um, given that quote from the rebels, it, um, Bradbury certainly did think it, it could have a more of a democratic approach to culture. I think that's clear, whether it's true or not is another issue. So on Jenny's point about Ecclesiastes, I think we have the advantage of Wikipedia, which probably... Um, Bradbury didn't have. If you read stories about writing it, he went and grabbed books from the library and had quotes in it. But my interpretation of um, Ecclesiastes from this point of view is, you know, it, whatever you do in life, it is vanity. That's the main thing. So, um, you know, just love God. And that's all you can do. So, but it, it is a criticism of generations. You can interpret it differently rather than literally to say that the message to future generations is don't make the mistakes of the past generation. Um, I don't think it's a very happy um, position, but I just want to say one thing about that. What's that is sort of prescient about the um, the book that we never think about. And I was thinking of all the um, tramps sitting around, the rebels are tramps, um, talking about books, and that came to my mind book clubs. You know, we're actually 
engaged in a very artificial enterprise. We're trying to preserve reading and discussion about books through meeting in small groups and other people meet in small groups. It's not natural reading. It's not, it doesn't come spontaneously. It's something we organise artificial. So perhaps um, we could just say that we're the embodiment of something that um, Bradby would be proud of. Okay, thank you very much, Dennis. Thanks everyone for uh, coming along. Why don't I just unmute everybody so you can show your appreciation if you'd like to everybody. applaud from this. Okay, thank, yeah, so thanks very much for coming. Um, uh, as, as I say, the next book club hasn't been arranged. We'll probably be in September. Next week, next Thursday, there's the Arts and Society Forum uh, on the arts after lockdown. And the following week is the debate on council culture. All the details are on the Academy of Ideas uh, website. Uh, if anybody else would like to uh, make a donation to the Academy of Ideas, uh, uh, again, academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Um, otherwise, uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, it's a very interesting, wide-ranging discussion, plenty to think about, um, and uh, do keep in touch, and I hope to see you all uh, again uh, very soon. Thank you. <laughs>